Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about converse versus convert. The evangelism of repulsion. back in the first year of Inappropriate Conversations, I shared a story when talking about both the Obama administration and the 2008 election that put Barack Obama into office as the President of the United States, and a group that I had been doing ministry with for several years. This is a group that, for me, I think going all the way back to 2001, maybe 2002, I had engaged in retreats, done prison ministry, had really played an active role in interacting with other people, trying to equip church leaders from various congregations, uh, men in particular, I suppose, because of the nature of a men's retreat versus a women's retreat, to step up and make a difference within their church. And that included, for many, stepping up and going inside the walls of you know a fairly high-security prison system to share the gospel there and to pay attention to the opportunities there to evangelize in a way that was really more about conversation, sharing our story, but more often listening to the story of others and trusting the Holy Spirit to guide and make a difference. Their mantra was listen, listen, love, love, among other mantras from that group. And this fellowship was really strong, but that fellowship was challenged a few years ago. And I shared about it on inappropriate conversations. It occurred to me today that I don't remember exactly which show. It could be a show talking about the nature of elections not being horse races. could be a show talking about minority experience in America and the, the still lingering realities of the tyranny of the majority. Or it could have simply been my reaction to some of the things that you see on Fox News. Uh, Glenn Beck, in particular, there was a show where I simply responded to some of the things that he had been saying. And in each one of those instances, I was recalling whether I spoke the words or not. The time I shared in this parachurch organization at a meeting, in a prayer circle of that meeting, me and my wife sitting at a table with six other people, and one of the questions that we faced that day, it was one of the things that was part of the ritual of the group, was how has the Holy Spirit moved in your life? Uh, what are some moments where you felt the presence of God? And what I shared, truly from the heart, was a conversation that I'd had online with a friend about the election of Obama. No, I didn't vote for Obama, didn't vote in 2008 for him, didn't vote for him in 2012. And I think anybody who's listened to inappropriate conversations has plenty of evidence why, if you just pay attention to previous shows. The Elections is Not Horse Races is a pretty good example of one of those shows, going all the way back to number 24, I believe. So my credentials as a political moderator are pretty secure. And I'm not wouldn't describe myself as a fan or an apologist of Barack Obama. But I did share that I had a friend who worked as a substitute teacher in elementary schools, in this case in the inner city of one of America's larger cities. And she said that the predominantly black students in his third or fourth grade class had just a, a different, just sort of different vibe about him that morning. And they expressed to her that maybe in some ways what they were seeing in the eyes of their parents was for the first time a genuine belief that maybe a black man could be elected to be the president of the United States. Because for that older generation, 
That was not a hope that they were particularly clinging to. It probably wasn't in a matter of doubt for them all the way up to the acceptance speech that night in 2008. I was, in my opinion, attacked for that point of view, called a racist to my face, because I was calling out what I saw as any positive that a Christian could find in the midst of what so many politically conservative Christians saw as nothing but a negative situation. And I couldn't help but to be caught up in the irony of being called a racist by people who were making for themselves a racist distinction. And at that point, the seed was planted, late in 2008, that maybe this was not a group I was going to be able to continue to do ministry with much longer. I've had a couple of opportunities to participate in men's retreats since then. I said yes once, I've said no a couple of other times. But now, this week... I think I've made a decision, a decision that's been festering for quite some time, and that's that with this particular ministry, my time of service is over. Now, I'm a Christian, and I will continue to serve in as many other ways as I can. If you haven't listened to the Walk the Earth podcast, just sampling a couple of those episodes, which are also here on the same feed at www.inappropriateconversations.org, will give you a very strong sense of how serious I am about Christianity. But then anyone who's a regular listener of Inappropriate Conversations probably can't have much doubt about how serious I am. Christianity 301, an episode just a month or two ago, was really all about taking the Bible seriously. If anything, one of the things I've got to remember to do is to take that level of seriousness in check and remind myself from time to time that there are a lot of people who are on a Christian walk who have taken a slight detour from where I'm at or who are maybe not as far along that path or have stopped along the way, and that it probably, on some level, is important for me to be patient and kind about it. But this is not one of those days. I have been told, related to multiple issues, this week alone, that there is something wrong with me as a Christian, that I should be ashamed of myself. People are metaphorically shaking their heads at me, as if I somehow don't fit in to the Christian family, because I have questions, or perhaps in some cases I have doubts, or perhaps in other places I have answers that others either refuse to accept or refuse to acknowledge, and some of those answers stem from the fact that in the prophetic writings of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, those prophets told us that the time would come, and I believe the time they were talking about was the arrival of Jesus of Nazareth and the, the Messiah's appearance as the Christ on earth. That that time would come when the law would be swept away, and that we would no longer worship by reading things off stone tablets, but that the word of the Lord would be written on our hearts. And I take the word heart to mean that it is all about love, which is convenient, because that's what Jesus said it was all about. It was all about love. And Paul, when challenged on more than one occasion about whether or not we should be following the law, consistently and without exception, said, we are no longer on the burden of the law. In the book of Galatians, he tells us quite clearly that the law was only in effect until Jesus came. Well, guess what, people? Jesus has come. So anyone who says that we should continue to follow the law, anyone who suggests that the light of conscience is not a valid thing to consider, At the very least, they're seriously out of step with everything that they claim to love so much about Scripture. 
You're going to find very few Christians who have taken sides on recent issues of political intrigue and concern, issues related to perhaps a TV show on the A&E network, or the fact that a pastor in Pennsylvania has lost his, his pastorship, has been defrocked for deciding that given the choice between marrying his son, who is gay, or ripping his family in two, faced with the choice of loving his family or obeying a man-made book of rules, he would choose his family. Now, when I talk about a man-made book of rules, I'm not taking a pot shot at the Bible. I'm taking a pot shot at the United Methodist Book of Discipline. And I would love to hear the heretics tell me that that is also the inspired and infallible word of God. As if somehow the United Methodists have a book that carries papal authority. No, no, Frank Schaefer was not asked to make a decision between whether or not to follow the Bible or his conscience regarding to his own family and his son. He was asked to make a decision about a human book setting out the rules for a denomination, rules that have changed over the years, rules about a denomination that if you go back enough decades, you're going to find a denomination that was on the other side of questions about racial segregation. Now, if you're going to find a couple of chapters anywhere in the New Testament where you can get people who have a different worldview than me, people who read Jesus's intentions in the Sermon on the Mount differently from me, you're going to find there's a lot of passion about Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2. Because it is in those chapters where Paul appears to be drawing a line in the sand about perversion and perversion of a same-sex variety. Well, let me share to you some of the things that I pull from Romans chapter 2 in particular. The Gentiles do not have the law. But whenever they do by instinct what the law commands, they are their own law, even though they do not have the law. Their conduct shows what the law commands is written in their hearts. Their consciences also show that this is true, since their thoughts sometimes accuse them and sometimes defend them. And so according to the good news I preach, this is how it will be on that day when God, through Jesus Christ, will judge the secret thoughts of all. What about you? You call yourself a Jew. You depend on the law and boast about God. You know what God wants you to do. You have learned from the law to choose what is right. You are sure that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in darkness, an instructor for the foolish, a teacher for the ignorant. You are certain that in the law you have full content of knowledge and of truth. You teach others. Why don't you teach yourself? You preach, do not steal, but you yourself steal. You say, do not commit adultery, but you yourself commit adultery. You detest idols, but do you rob temples? You boast about having God's law, but you bring shame on God by breaking his law. The scripture says, because of you Jews, Gentiles will speak evil of God. Why well, say, because of some of you Christians, the world will speak evil of God? You doubt me? The beginning of Romans chapter 2 makes it clear. Do you, my friends, pass judgment on others? You have no excuse at all, whoever you are. For when you judge others, then you do the same thing which they do. You condemn yourself. It's not just that, though. That's not what has me keyed up, perhaps as angry as I've ever been on an inappropriate conversation show. It would be one thing if people were just failing to do as Jesus said, failing to love their neighbor as themselves, failure to love God, failure to follow the example of the parable of the Good Samaritan. No, it's this denial that God, through his Holy Spirit, has written his law on our conscience and asked us to follow. I would go as far as to say that many of the people I've interacted with online in the last five days, people who I have served elbow to elbow in active Christian evangelism, have told me, in effect, 
without using the words because they know how bad the words sound. That there is no Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a law written on our conscience, despite what Paul says, despite what Ezekiel and Jeremiah say. These people are heretics. They are terrorists in the name of God. They are people who have defiled the Lord's holy scripture. And perhaps it is time that we recognize a cult for what it is. For you don't have to go back two or three hundred years in church history to find Spanish inquisitions who would round people up for denying scripture so brazenly and so boldly and so confidently and throwing them into a pit and leaving them there to compete with rats for what little food is provided. In some cases, leaving them there and forgetting them there for good if they refuse to repent of this open and brazen denial that God is who he said he is. That Jesus, in John's Gospel, goes on and on about sending a Holy Spirit. That in Acts chapter 2, Peter recounts basically the sermon that was there happening right at the moment when the Holy Spirit came upon people and infilled and indwelt them. And yet we deny this when we say that the law can't be written on your hearts. These are people who should be ashamed of themselves. And perhaps the time has come for us to round up those people who are part of this vile exception and shun them from our society. Now they're going to tell us that they, they're the majority in this country. Well, I don't know. You start putting a litmus test on people's orthodoxy, you can divide up the believers from the non-believers pretty quickly. So I say, let's do that litmus test. Let's have our own mini version of the Salem witch trials in, the, in America today and separate them. And have them you know, put aside the way that certain cults in states like Oregon and Utah, in my lifetime, have lived willingly or unwillingly separated from the large areas of society for fear that their views might infect the rest of the population. Surround them with an electrified fence on all sides. Make sure that under no circumstances can they get out. Treat them like the worst form of cultic exception in the early years of this country, like some of the Shakers who locked themselves into caves and ended up starving themselves to death because they were convinced that the world was going to come to an end. And if they just waited in the cave long enough and came out, then everyone else would be dead because they were indifferent to everyone else. They were as indifferent to everyone else as these so-called Christians are today. Now, I'm not saying starve them to death. I'm not saying deprive them of food and water. Airdrop some food over there. Airdrop some water over there. Let them live to the ripe old age of dying of old age and contentment. But keep them within just a few square miles. As few square miles as humanly possible. So that when they eventually do die out, they don't need doctors. They don't need medical care. Their faith will heal them. And when they do eventually die out, the state of Christianity in America today will be better because of their absence. Because these people, essentially, by being indifferent to the suicide rate among the people that they condemn, having views on rules and regulations and laws and desired Supreme Court rulings that would essentially isolate people to such a degree that they feel totally separated from anything that they could possibly conceive as loving, every one of those suicides is an act of murder. These are murderers. These are terrorists. They are God-haters. They are God-deniers because they do not believe in the Trinity. They may accept that Jesus walked the earth and said some very fine things, but nothing that Jesus said can be interpreted as overturning a whole bunch of Jewish laws written hundreds of years earlier. What is that if not heresy? And what does the Bible tell us to do with people who are heretics? What does their cherished Old Testament scriptures tell them that should be done with people who are heretics. In some ways, if I were them, I would view me as a heretic too, not because I'm suggesting that they're evil and that they should be rounded up, but because I am suggesting that we don't stone them to death. 
because that is actually what their own belief and their own interpretation of Scripture tells them to do. And there's no one to speak on their behalf because the Holy Spirit, who came to tell us a better way, either doesn't exist in their minds or is not important in their minds or certainly carries no weight whatsoever in their minds. Now, I have a question for you. Because I am keyed up. I'm legitimately keyed up. And I realize that there's a, a grave inconsistency with everything that I have written online, calmly, carefully, thoughtfully, perhaps. And what may or may not come off the top of my head in a moment of rage. But am I being hateful? If I were one of these people that I used to be in fellowship with that I'm so angry at right now, would they think that I hate them? Like, perhaps... The real question is not whether anyone else thinks I hate them, but do they think I hate them? That is the million-dollar question. Nerd Hurdles, the podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. You have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles. I want to share some insights from a business insider columnist named Josh Barrow, writing under the heading, When You Defend Phil Robertson, Here's What You're Really Defending, December 21st, 2013. In his article, he writes that, among other things, when you're defending Robertson, you're defending a racist notion that blacks were happier in the Jim Crow South, that you're defending the idea that Japanese burned Pearl Harbor because they didn't believe in Jesus, it certainly wasn't any imperial intention. But the third one is the one that's most interesting to me. Robertson hates gay people. Robertson in 2010 said, quote, Women with women, men with men, they committed indecent acts with one another and they received in themselves the due penalty for their perversions. They're full of murder, envy, strife, hatred. They're insolent, arrogant God-haters. They're heartless. They're faithless. They're senseless. They're ruthless. They invent ways of doing evil. Later on, leaving that quotation, he would compare homosexuality to bestiality as if our modern understanding of what sexual identity and sexual orientation are was the same thing as people who have sex with those who can't consent, including animals. Here's what Barrow says about his last observation that Robertson hates gay people. He says this, This last one is key. My inbox is full of love the sinner, hate the sin defenses of Robertson's 2013 remarks. But Robertson doesn't love gay people. He thinks they're, quote, full of murder. His views on gays are hateful inasmuch as they are full of hate. As a side note, it's remarkable how these things come as a package. Robertson's sincere doctrinal views about the sinfulness of homosexuality comes packaged with animus toward gays and retrograde views about blacks and non-Christians. It's almost as though social conservatism is primarily fueled by a desire to protect the privileges of what once was a straight, white, Christian in-group, rather than by sincere religious convictions. So here I am, sharing you know, a level of outrage that, to a certain degree, has a bit of an orchestration to it. It's not that I'm not angry at things that have been said, both to me and around me, in the last week. It has, in many ways, well and truly ruined the spirit of Christmas this year. 
This wasn't a spirit of Christmas ruined by people who've rejected God and gone their own way, allegedly. This is ruined for me by people who claim to be the one and truly voice of God in our society, the chosen people. Now, I could do what I typically do in an inappropriate conversation and share other scriptures, not an angrily voiced view of Paul in the same part of Romans where he describes a whole lot of things that he thinks are ungodly as a means by which to tell us not to judge one another. And we somehow listen to the first part, ignore the second part, and everyone's accusing everybody of selectively reading scripture and you know, picking and choosing their verses and taking things out of context. But for me, I've got other things where I've spoken to what I believe the end-to-end reading of the Christian narrative says. The Christianity 201 article that's at the top part of the page at inappropriateconversations.org. Or recently, the Christianity 301 podcast that tried to take that even up a notch and, and talk about it at another level. No, I think when I want to talk about Scripture today... I'm going to limit it and focus it to just one or two verses from our different drummer. Because, frankly, one of the problems we've had is too much scripture flying around like shrapnel. I'm not going to do a long-winded different drummer segment for Peter of Bethsaida. Part of the reason I'm not going to do that is that this is one of those keyed-up episodes, like the ones I referred to at the beginnings of the show, where I may not have given much space to the different drummer. In the one that was answering a question about capitalism in the realm of ideas, I barely had time to talk about Thomas Jefferson at all. The different drummer segment was essentially two or three quotations. And I did the same thing for Aristotle. Too much to say except for share the one key quote. Plus, in the last you know, three or four inappropriate conversation shows... I've spent some time talking about St. Peter, his experiences, both as a disciple and as an apostle. So for now, it may be enough to just drop a quote from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. That's the New International Version. To me, it begs a question. It assumes that we are speaking with gentleness and with respect. And if we are not, have we then failed the standard set by Peter? (laughs) More than that, we have failed the standard set by our Lord. There's a reason why the stakes here are really high, and a reason why they matter so much. In that interest, I'm going to quote at length from another blog that I found, trying to seek some solace, trying to seek some hope, written by a United Methodist youth pastor named Tyler Smither in a blog called In the Parlor. Smither writes this. This is on December 19th. Today there are two news stories that have been circulating all over my Facebook and Twitter news feeds. One you are probably aware of, the other, maybe not. The two, though, are closely related. The first news story is the indefinite suspension of Duck Dynasty star Phil Robertson due to the comments he made during an interview with GQ magazine. 
The second news story is about the defrocking of Pennsylvania United Methodist pastor Frank Schaefer after he performed the marriage for his gay son and subsequent refusal to submit to church law regarding this action. The link between the two stories is clear. The church's views, or in the case of Duck Dynasty, a certain understanding of the Christian faith's views regarding homosexuality. The reaction to both of these stories has been emphatic to say the least. The debate over the rightness or wrongness of homosexuality has once again been fired up. The appeals to biblical passages have been made. The academic rebuttals to the interpretation of those passages has no doubt been referenced. The calls for freedom and tolerance from both sides have been shouted, or at least typed, with great gusto. The theological debate, and I'm using that term very generously here, has been raging all day long and no doubt will continue to rage in the weeks to come. But I refuse to engage in it. The way I see it, the time for that debate has long since passed. The stakes are too high now. Current research suggests that teenagers that are gay are now about three times more likely to attempt suicide than their heterosexual peers. That puts the percentage of gay teens attempting suicide at some 30%. One out of three teens who are gay or bisexual will try to kill themselves. And a lot of times they succeed. In fact, Schaefer's son contemplated suicide on a number of occasions in his teens. The fact of the matter is, it doesn't matter whether or not you think homosexuality is a sin. Let me say it again. It does not matter if you think homosexuality is a sin, or if you think that it's simply just another expression of human love. It doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Because people are dying. Kids are literally killing themselves because they are so tired of being rejected and dehumanized that they feel their only option left is to end their life. As a youth pastor, this makes me physically ill. And as a human, it should make you feel the same way. So I'm through with the debate. When faced with the choice between being theologically correct, as if that is even possible, or being morally responsible, I'll go with morally responsible every time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a former different drummer, inserting my opinion as Greg, was a German pastor and theologian during World War II. He firmly held the theological position of nonviolence. He believed that complete pacifism was theologically correct, and yet in the midst of the war, he conspired to assassinate Adolf Hitler, to kill a fellow man. Why? Because in light of what he saw happening to the Jews around him by the Nazis, he felt that it would be morally irresponsible not to. Between the assassination of Hitler and nonviolence, he felt the greater sin would be nonviolence. We are past the time for debate. We no longer have the luxury to consider the original meeting of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. We are now faced with the reality that lives are at stake. So whatever you believe about homosexuality, keep it to yourself. Instead, try telling a gay kid that you love him and you don't want him to die. Try inviting her into your church and into your home and into your life. Anything other than that simply doesn't matter. These are the words of Tyler Smither on his blog, In the Parlor. Hi, I'm Tony Pucci, and I lost my sister Jenny to ALS. Songs for Jenny is a charity CD for ALS patient care and research. 
Otherwise known as Lou Gehrig's disease, ALS is a disease without a cure. The Songs for Jenny CD features my music along with guest vocalists from around the world. All proceeds from the sale of the Songs for Jenny CD will be donated to the ALS Association of America, Minnesota Chapter. To find out more and to purchase the CD, please visit www.songsforjenny.com. I'll share another view from one more blogger, because I think that Jen Hatmaker has spoken pretty well to my perspective on this issue. And then I'll go into my point of view, because I didn't really come here to take a pot shot at people whose understanding of the Holy Spirit and the Trinity is different from my own. I'm hoping that somewhere in the midst of that show-opening diatribe, that that became suspiciously clear to people who've listened to most of these shows. Here's what Jen says. Do you know how many people are starving for real love, real hope, real mercy? The world is dark and lonely and suffering, and Jesus seemed to think that the best course was to send disciples out who were willing to constantly make the kingdom real for people who were searching for something true. Jesus didn't tell us to make the gospel right. He didn't tell us to make it law. He told us to make it real. For me... This is the most extreme obedience to biblical truth that I can imagine. Later in the article, Hatmaker says this, I'm going to choose love. This is not a gray area. I'm telling you now that I will find a way to preach the scandalous love of Jesus in face of any issue, demographic, or debate. I will insist on jerking a door open for dialogue with people who've previously been maligned by my faith. I will not reinforce the notion that anyone is less than condemned, left out. Because if that is true, then my salvation is a lie. Because I love mercy for myself, I can't help but love it for everyone else. And I won't cheapen it by imagining that my grace is free, but someone else's must be earned. Jesus is the best news in history. Those are Hatmaker's words, and I thank her for them. Where I took that, just basically even this week, interacting with people on the question of two adult, frankly, middle-aged or older women who were pastors in the United Methodist Church and lesbian and in love with each other, chose to get married. And I made a point I've made on many occasions before. It is awfully hard to find another sin that politically active conservative Christians tell people they must fix themselves before they are welcome into full membership in the body of Christ. We've got this idea that you've got to stop being who you are in order to be allowed in. And some people draw lines around it. They say, well, no, 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 no. We, we would never shut the doors of the church on anyone. You're welcome in. I just don't want you in the choir. Or maybe if you're going to sing in the choir, that's okay because you're surrounded by better Christians than you. But I don't want you reading scripture. Or heaven forbid, I can't have you being ordained. Because We've got all these double and triple and quadruple standards that we've set where God has freely given us his grace and forgiven us of our sins. But that person's sins, they've got to do something on their own to demonstrate that they're either better or over it or getting better or getting over it. But what I don't want to do on this particular inappropriate conversation is walk through all the scripture that makes me believe the way that I do. Because... I kind of agree with that blogger. At the end of the day, if you want to do it Jesus' way, being right's not the question. And every Christian who has tried to take the law that Paul has taught us is fulfilled and gone forever, and replace it by supplanting Paul's very words as some new sort of law, 
Well, they deserve my wrath. That wasn't just a game. That wasn't just a show. Paul has taught us over and over again that the law is gone. James tells us in his epistle that if you pretend to follow the law, you got to follow all the law. Well, find me a Christian who has strong views about things like homosexuality, who follows all the law. Now, they'll be quick to point a finger at me and say, well, you're being liberal somehow. And again, I don't view myself as a liberal at all. I am a radical moderate. I'm not some lukewarm, wishy-washy centrist either. I am a radical moderate. What I believe in, I believe in with all my heart and soul and strength and mind. And I am looking to the very words and example of Jesus Christ to guide me along this path. But this is not the show where I want to talk about Jesus, what he said, what he did, and how it informs us on how we should interact with people who are not Christians, people who are homosexual, and whether they're Christians or not, people who've you know, done any, any number of a litany of things that seem to draw this kind of ire. No, I could say that's a different show for a different day. Maybe it is, maybe it's not. I'll feel a little bit hypocritical if I get to that different day anytime soon, because this is a truce I'm serious about calling. Now, what I want to do when I'm talking about this concept of do we converse or do we convert, it really cuts to the heart of this very question of if the church can't just scream condemnation at people from any pulpit that people put in front of us, then what in the heck are we supposed to do? As I make this transition, though, I want to call out a couple of things for us to keep in mind. Because I don't think that any truce, if that's what I'm attempting to call here, is realistic unless both sides recognize their need to disarm. Or perhaps multiple sides if there's more than two. Remember that the thing we hear most from people who I would describe as politically active Christians is that they are firmly committed to love the sinner, hate the sin. And sometimes you end up in arguments, or I end up in arguments with people over whether that's biblical or not. It's really easy. It's not. But I had somebody tell me this past week that she didn't really care whether it was biblical or not, that it was okay for her to extend beyond what the Bible says, that this principle of loving the sinner and hating the sin is still a good idea, even if it's not what Jesus taught. Because she can certainly find God, whether God the Father or God the Son, demonstrating that behavior, demonstrating that quality. But I'll ask again, was I being hateful earlier in this show by suggesting that we round up these people that I believe have got at least aberrant Christian views, if not borderline heretical Christian views, treat them like a cult, put them in some sort of concentration camp, and segregate them permanently from society. I think that those, those were hateful words, or at the very least, the people who felt I was directing those words at them would feel that they were hateful. And yet, at the same time, these are the same people who are supporting pastors who have said those exact words in the past couple of years about gays and lesbians. I'm just quoting a Southern Baptist pastor from the Carolinas and his solution for the gay problem as he saw it, which was round them all up, put them in a camp, and wait till they die out. So you can't be anything other than a hypocrite, really, if you feel like you've been treated hatefully when someone uses kind of the same words toward you that you have either used toward others or praised others for using toward others. Hate is hate. Right and wrong's got very little to do with it. You can't hate the right people and have that be somehow justified. The other point that I would raise, though, is that 
the dialogue itself here gets to be a little bit different depending on who you're talking to. So in a conversation I had online, I decided at one point that I probably needed, just for my own self-protection, to share the fact that I've been married to the same woman for more than you know, a quarter of a century, and that we've known each other, and frankly been dating for a third of a century, that I'm in a stable Christian relationship. And I called that out, but then I later kind of felt bad about it. And after apologizing because somebody accused me of being hateful, and I didn't think I was, but I, I wanted to make sure that I respected their sensibility in a way that, frankly, I'm not sure that many of the people I've been interacting with would, could claim that they honestly have, have respected the sensibility of black people or homosexual people who've heard the comments made by the Duck Dynasty people. No, I said this. I took an odd step yesterday of sharing quite a bit about my relationship with my wife. I wasn't asked. It wasn't necessary to the conversation. Would the dialogue that we're having here today be different if I hadn't taken that step? Or if I happened to be a homosexual or bisexual person? Maybe one who'd left the church because, rightly or wrongly, other Christians had told me that there is no place for me there. That is the experience of countless people. This isn't a hypothetical thought. Countless people have been told, directly or indirectly, by Christians, that because of who they are, they are not welcome in the church. Well, my question is, would anything change in this discussion? Would our conversation become more about efforts to convert than to converse? Maybe there'd be a different tone. Maybe there'd be a defensive tone. I ask because I don't know. But if there was a difference in this conversation a subtle level of confrontation from either one of us, then that tells you all you need to know about the difference between love one another, which is what Jesus commanded. He didn't just say it. He commanded it. And love the sinner but hate the sin. That difference is real. It's a difference that makes a difference. Because if people would lash out in anger, if there would be some expression of hatred over that subtle little difference then that tells you how far away from Christ our Christians have become. So what is the appropriate, inappropriate conversation's perspective? A little play on words there. What do I recommend that we do in the face of the name-calling and the hatred and the pretending that hatred isn't really hatred? What's the way forward? Well, let me do the same thing that I've always done when I'm engaging people in debate. I want to grant my opponents everything and then hold them accountable for the consequences of what they've asked. It's really basically a three-part process. First, if there is a we, and that we refers to the church, or to Christianity, or at least to the dominant Christian nation form of Christianity, then there seems to be a predominant view that we have to do something about homosexuality. There's other issues too, but let me just focus on the issue of the day. This may explain celebrities condemning homosexuals in the media. Perhaps that's a strategy that the Christian nation believes that the thing we need to do about homosexuality is condemn them in the media. Well, point number two. I can't conceive of that strategy working. I see no evidence in American society that it is proceeding effectively. In fact, over the last 30 or 40 years, it seems to have failed miserably. It helps in some ways that this isn't what Jesus told us to do. So its failure miserably is not a theological crisis. If it is, 
It's a crisis that says that we need to go back to the Gospels and listen to what our Savior commanded. Love one another, by the way, is kind of at the heart of it. So the third point, if we must have a strategy, let's come up with a better one, a much better one. This could mean that as Christians, or even as a Christian nation, that A, we work with people, find a common ground, understand as much as we want to be understood, work together. B, find better leaders. I can start with following Jesus' example, because clearly we don't have enough leaders out there who are terribly good at following Jesus' example. We're not all that good at following Paul's example, even though a lot of people quote him because they feel like his words can be twisted to serve their purpose. And C, tether ourselves as Christians to what Jesus commanded. Love others. Protect the least of these. These aren't just suggestions. Finally, D, shun as sadly necessary, those who refuse to follow Jesus on this new path. Now, this point, 3D, means that we need to stop listening to the Westboro Baptist folks. I think all of us kind of know that, but it's ironic that so many people who I interact with on the conservative side of Christianity, who recognize that they need to stop interacting with the Westboro Baptist folks, who be very quick to tell you that they are different from the Westboro Baptist Church, are aligned in lockstep with that group on this issue, specifically this question of where do we stand on Duck Dynasty, and frankly, as a Christian, I would be more than just a little bit concerned if I find myself lining up too closely, theologically, with Westboro Baptist Church. I'll grant you that they're not always wrong. Please grant me that they're rarely right. And I would even ask to be granted that in following the example of Jesus, they seem to be almost never right. But it's more than just the Westboro Baptist folks. We probably need to do likewise with almost every televangelist, with a large number of Christian politicians, with a ton of journalists and people on commentary shows purporting to speak for Christianity, or their view of what proper Christianity is, versus whatever they might call me behind my back, or from time to time to my face. Should we shake the dust off our feet in the midst of these people, walk away from them and move on to another town? Well, it's what Jesus would have us do. It's what Jesus commanded his evangelists to do. See, because for Jesus, his individual evangelists were not being sent out with a grade coming back on how well they converted. They were being sent out to converse. Jesus was totally okay if some of the people that he sent out two by two went into a community and their message there was not received. Paul, speaking in Athens at the Areopagus, shared the gospel fairly completely, all the way through Christ's death and resurrection. He didn't convince everybody. He convinced some. He didn't have to convince everybody to be impactful. Otherwise, we wouldn't know who Paul was. So, it is possible for us to walk away from some of the wolves in sheep's clothing in our midst, who have put their love of political power, their desire to elevate their status above the status of others, and to make that paradigm. It is possible to shun those people. It's a harsh thing to say. How will we know them? We'll know them in their response to this question that I shared earlier from Jen Hatmaker. I will not reinforce the notion that anyone is less than, condemned, or left out, because if that is true, then my salvation is a lie. Because I love mercy for myself, I can't help but to love it for everyone else, and I won't cheapen it 
by imagining that my grace is free, but someone else's must be earned. I will not cheapen the love of Christ by imagining that God's grace for me is freely given, but someone else's must be earned. Period. No matter who they are, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're doing, no matter what they're still doing, no matter what it means that I disapprove of what they're doing, I won't play God. I'm unfit for the part. If you didn't believe that before, the first 20 minutes of this inappropriate conversation surely should have hammered that idea home. I am unfit for the part. But that's okay. It's not a role that Jesus has asked me to play. It's not a role that Jesus has asked any of us to play. And anybody who says so isn't just deceiving himself or herself. They are really denying the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He told us that the law would not go away until he fulfilled it, and then he did. In amazing, supernatural fashion. And he gave us a couple of commands that he wanted us to focus on instead. Love God with all your heart and soul and strength and mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now this isn't some new teaching. This isn't some sneaky heresy. This is actually words coming straight out of the books of Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Jesus is simply saying, that if you love your neighbor as you love yourself, you have fulfilled all the law. Now, you know, there's Jesus and there's Paul. It's hard to find places where Jesus spends a lot of time condemning homosexuality and telling his followers to go and do likewise. You won't find that anywhere in the Gospels, by the way. But Paul does speak pretty bluntly to this issue of whether loving your neighbor as yourself is sufficient. Because so often you see Christians who say that, well, Jesus said this, but Paul said that. Here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 9 and 10. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not commit murder, do not steal, do not desire what belongs to someone else. All these and any others besides are summed up in one command. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. If you love someone, you will never do him wrong. To love then is to obey the whole law. I've had conversations this week with people that I've done active Christian ministry with who have told me that Paul didn't mean what he said. Words like the whole law or the Jewish law should be replaced with things like civil and ceremonial rules. Instead, that Jesus came to, to overthrow dietary restrictions and days we should worship, and clothes that we should wear, and the way that we should manage our economies and plant our fields, those are all gone. But a handful of other rules, a handful of those other laws, are still in effect. I'm sorry. That's simply not a biblical position. And the most offensive thing about it, and it is indeed offensive, is that it denies the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 the new covenant that I will make with my people of Israel will be this. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. None of them will have to teach their fellow countrymen to know the Lord, because all will know me, from the least to the greatest. I will forgive their sins, and I will no longer remember their wrongs. I, the Lord, have spoken. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you and make you clean from all your idols and everything else that has defiled you. I will give you a new heart 
and a new mind. I will take away your stubborn heart of stone and give you an obedient heart. I will put my spirit in you and will see to it that you follow my laws and keep all the commands I have given you. When honest, conscientious Christians refuse to lash out in anger and judgment, consistent with what Paul told us, not to lash out at others in anger and judgment, as if we somehow were superior, and look instead to their own hearts, to their own conscience, and into the lives of other people, and decide, I want to get to know that person. I want to find out whether there's truth in who they say they are. And then, finding out that there's truth in who they say they are, decide, then I will not stand idly by, waiting for them to be bullied to the point of committing suicide. I will not fail to stand up and speak in their defense if they are treated harshly in the media by powerful people who have powerful resources and apparently can marshal a powerful army of people to back them up on their position, to take what they know and acknowledge to be a relative minority, and yet line up to bully that minority indifferent to the consequences of it. We heard from a blogger today who says, it is no longer relevant to ask questions about whether homosexuality is right or wrong. Suicide is wrong. Doing things that encourage suicide. Celebrating and defending suicide. Trampling on the graves of suicide victims. Standing metaphorically side by side with Westboro Baptist Church, protesting the funerals of those suicide victims, is wrong. People who have a holy, living spirit inside them, that they're paying attention to. People who are not hiding behind the law and the prophets, ignoring God's will for them, for them and for their lives and for their ministry, would hear that and would respond to it and say, Jesus, you told us that we would find you in the least of these. Who, Lord Jesus, do I find to be least among your people? And how can I minister to those people as if I truly believed your words and found them to be you, Lord Jesus, walking the face of this earth. I want one day to be in ministry again, side by side, whether in hospitals and nursing homes, whether behind the walls of a prison, or whether just inside the church, where sometimes I think we find the most desperate need for people to be reminded once again of what Jesus truly taught us to do. I want to be in ministry with people who sincerely are following the call of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not exaggerating one bit when I say it grieves me deeply that a group that I was in ministry with for a decade, I can no longer say yes to. I've read what they've said on their Facebook pages. I've read what they've tweeted. I've read the emails that still come to my house from people who presume that because I'm a Christian like they are that I agree with anything that they may say. And these are people who, if I called them on it and said, your actions and your words are hateful, would remind me that they're not really hateful because the, the wrong people is who they're attacking. That it's not hateful if you attack the sinful people, losing complete sight of the fact that we're all sinful. All of us have been saved. If you're a Christian, you believe that all of us have been saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and none of us did anything to deserve it. All of us have to reconcile who we really and truly are, and the gap between that and who we know the Lord wants us to be. But let me finish with an interesting question today, a question that comes from the Gospels, from conversations that Jesus had with the religious leaders of his time. 
I could make the argument again, as I've made before, that the arguments that I hear from the Phil Robertsons of the world sound so much more like the Pharisees than they do Jesus Christ, that it's more than just a little scary that someone who speaks in these Pharisaic terms is able to galvanize such widespread support. But a lot of the arguments that I faced this week regarding Frank Schaefer, regarding another United Methodist couple, and you know the ministry that I'm having grave concerns about ever participating in again, I was introduced to it through the United Methodist Church. So there's there's a certain singularity to all this trouble I've been having this week. But Jesus was asked directly by the Pharisees about how eternal marriage is. Now in that gospel account, it was indeed a trick. They were trying to get Jesus to say something wrong, to, to contradict himself, to prove that he wasn't the Messiah, to get his interpretation of scripture off in some way that could be used then to vilify him. Ironically, in this day and age, Jesus wouldn't have to say something wrong. We would just splice together some quotes out of context, put it on the news channels, and excoriate him that way. But back then, it was really necessary that they hear it straight from Jesus' mouth, because there was no tape recordings that could be manipulated later. There was no spin or interpretation that could be put on a particular snapshot to make him look foolish or to make him look wrong in some way. No, they asked him directly. They said, hey, you know, there's a, there's a hypothetical woman and she was married to one man, and he died, and then she married to another man, and he died, or maybe it was the other way around, maybe it was a man who was married to multiple wives, but basically they go through all this, the, the, somebody who, because of a series of misfortunes, being widowed or widowed many times, when they get to heaven, which one of the many spouses is their real spouse? What does Jesus say? And what does the answer that Jesus gives in that context tell us about a very real question? about whether the Christian church in America today should divide in some sort of civil war over the eternal nature of marriage. Now, I'm not saying marriage is unimportant. I've been married for more than a quarter of a century. I look forward to the idea of perhaps being married for a half a century. I expect that my death is the only thing that's going to interrupt that pattern. I am, as I hope to share maybe early in 2014, one of the happiest married people that I know. But despite the fact that I believe in marriage in this lifetime, and I don't contradict anything that Jesus said in any of the questions he was asked elsewhere about marriage, I would only offer this. This notion that there's some eternal, forever significance to marriage flies in the face of Scripture and directly contradicts Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the ultimate teacher who said, in heaven no one will be married or be given in marriage. Every time we place eternal consequences on something that Jesus may have regarded as serious and may have regarded as important, but certainly did not regard as eternal, we have stepped outside the boundary of Scripture, and we flirt very dangerously with being the kind of false prophets, the kind of wolves in sheep's clothing that Paul warned churches about, that we should be watchful for those people who come in and use the Bible as a weapon. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this inappropriate conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. There are show notes on the website at inappropriateconversations.org, and comments are enabled there. I have quoted today from things that I've shared on Twitter, where I can be found as at IC underscore Greg and things that I've posted on both the Walk the Earth Facebook page 
and the Inappropriate Conversations Facebook page. As I have said online, I think particularly on Facebook this week, I do apologize for anything that I may have said or done that has contributed to lowering the quality of discourse this week during a time of, frankly, too much heated and inflammatory rhetoric. And although I used even more heated and even more inflammatory rhetoric at the start of this show, believe me, it was only there to prove a point and to make an example. I do not hate the people that I now no longer feel I can do ministry with. In fact, I grieve deeply for the fact that that time of ministry has clearly come to a close. Thanks for listening.